Thanks for downloading this show from PC1. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. The following program is a podcast1.com production. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. ClarkDeals.com is where you find the latest, greatest bargains. Coming up in 20 minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, the IRS scam that has stolen millions from people has just been shut down, one of them. But you know there's always going to be other people trying to take advantage. I have an update for you on that in just 20 minutes. And speaking of taxes, later this hour, tax day, you know, next week, I've got important info for you if you have not filed yet. And there's something I want you to think about to start planning for next year that happened in a conversation I had with my oldest daughter occurred to me as I was talking to her, there's something that she didn't know that I need to make sure you know. Now, the United story has grown and grown and grown since I talked about it at this time yesterday, where uh, I shouldn't say if you're not aware who is, who's not seen this video that has been seen apparently over a billion times around the world where United violently had a customer removed from a flight because United wanted to put pass riders, United employees, on the plane and pull off paying customers on a flight out of Chicago. Now, United has handled this, How what happened at the time and what's happened since. They've handled it about as terribly as they possibly could because it's clear that United's culture is one that is extremely hostile to its customers, to its passengers. The unbelievable aftermath involves the United CEO releasing one statement to the public and a completely different one to its own employees disparaging, slandering the passenger involved and telling the employees how proud he is of him, of them. And this is so ugly, nasty. It reminds me of that pivotal moment in the presidency of President George W. Bush during Hurricane Katrina when he said, great job, Brownie, to the head of um, FEMA in the midst of a complete government botch job on the handling the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi and Louisiana. It was more important to the CEO to two-face the public because you got to know the history of United going back for more than a generation Employees and management at United have been at war with each other, and the passengers have been the collateral damage. So it was more important to the CEO to kiss up to the employees 
even if the company has fouled this up. And so United is now suffering consequences that they never anticipated. Because there's an angle to this story that's amazing that was something I wasn't aware of at all. And that is in China, which is one of United's most important markets, there's a belief that American companies have it in for the Chinese. And this passenger that was violently confronted and removed and bloodied and put in the hospital from his injuries was of Chinese descent. And so in China, it is the top story in the country. And the statement of the CEO has made that even worse, pouring more gasoline on a fire. Now, I've always said there are two key principles to running a successful business. And that is you as a CEO always have to have the focus of every manager being on serving the public. But that the way you get that done is you serve your employees. In so many modern American corporations, employees have to spend their career sucking up to whoever the boss is above them, who sucks up to the boss above them, who sucks up to the boss above them, and nobody's thinking about the customer. But great companies keep the focus on the customer. I don't know if you've seen this thing that is spread across social media. Somebody took the logo of Southwest Airlines and did this really cute thing that I hope my friends will stop texting this to me because I've gotten it 11 times so far today. Southwest, we beat the competition, not you. Southwest has nothing to do with that. Any business, you should be careful knocking your competitors because at some point you're going to mess up some way. But the thing here is that it's leaked out that United used an internal system, computer system, to calculate how cheaply they could get by with not honoring somebody's reservation. So the system calculated who was on the cheapest fares on the plane and the federal government has a very very dated formula for paying compensation if an airline involuntarily denies you boarding and it's much cheaper to involuntarily pull somebody off a plane than to pay ask for volunteers at a gate but airlines ask for volunteers and if they're smart they just keep raising what they offer Because you infuriate people when you don't honor their reservation. You don't get them to where they're trying to go. Delta has gotten the reverse publicity in the aftermath of the United thing because there was someone who received $11,000 in compensation to give up their seats when nobody else would give up their seats on a Delta flight. That instead of them invoking their stack deck rights for involuntary denied boarding, they instead 
paid and paid handsomely. And it makes me think about what ideas have happened in the past. And there's an airline, just because they're out of business, doesn't mean this was a bad idea. But the airline that used to be the largest airline in the United States, if you're younger, you may not have ever heard of this airline, but it was called Eastern Airlines. And they failed in 1991 because of a huge fight between the airline and its unions destroyed the company. But they had a system to prevent anything like United did from ever happening. What they did was they would offer passengers a better deal on a ticket. It was the cheapest ticket you could buy on a flight, and it was called leisure class, geared towards vacation travelers. And when you bought a leisure class ticket, you were getting a phenomenal deal on the flight. Whatever the other fares on that flight were, you were getting better. But in turn, as a leisure class passenger, and they made it clear as could be, if a plane was oversold and they needed your seat, the seat they needed would be for a last-minute, very high-dollar business traveler, they would take your seat away on that flight give you back the fare you paid, and guarantee you passage on the next flight to your destination. And they never had to worry about ever having an involuntary denied boarding. Because up front, people would buy a ticket where they knew that was part of the deal, but they got the twofer. They got the lowest fare possible on the plane, And they got free travel on the next flight if they ended up not getting to go at all. And they would fly essentially for free. You know, you do so much better with people if you offer them rewards instead of punishment. And there's no excuse for the United CEO, who's supposed to be a very fine man, by the way, being two-faced on this. And when they've done something so egregiously wrong, slandering the person they put in the hospital, remember they say, our first responsibility is your safety? Beating up a passenger doesn't meet that standard, United Airlines. And United believes... And Wall Street believes that we're all going to forget about this in 10 minutes. So let me say it again. United Airlines, United Airlines, United Airlines, you're the ones that did this, and you're still not owning up to your duty and responsibility to the flying public. Sandra is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Clark. How you doing, Sandra? I am just fine. Clark, I typically buy my cars new and drive the wheels off of them before I replace them. My current car is 12 years old, and hopefully I won't jinx it by saying it runs great and could probably last me a couple more years. Okay, this is the funniest thing. I just had a call yesterday from someone who also had bought a new car. It was a, a, I think it was an SUV, and they had driven it 12 years, and they were calling (laughs) to ask for permission to dump it and buy something new. Well, that's basically what I'm calling to say as well, because I was thinking about buying at the end of the year with Black Friday or Christmas sales, 
But I'm seeing all these incentives. So I guess my question is, with all the sales are going on now, do I buy now, do I buy this summer, or do I wait until the end of the year? So here's what's happening in the car business right now. The car market has uh, hit a point of exhaustion. We've had year after year of record or near record sales for cars, trucks, SUVs, whatever, you know, vehicles. And finally, we've reached a point where the demand that may have been pent up has been satisfied, and it's become very difficult this year for the automakers to find buyers. The incentives are rising, and they're going steadily higher, and they'll continue to go higher until a key signal for you, Sandra. Okay. That key signal is if you hear in the news about auto plants being temporarily shuttered. Okay. When that happens, that's when the automakers have capitulated and said, this isn't working, we've got to shut down a shift, or we've got to shut down the factory. Shutdown's a uh, word you're never supposed to use in an auto plant, because that means <laughs> they're closing the plant. But anyway, temporarily suspend production. Let's say that's what they call it. And okay. when that happens, that's the signal to you that vehicle supply is at its max level it's going to be. Okay. So the automakers Good. are right now building more vehicles than the market wants, and they're piling up at the factory, in transit, and on dealer lots. And okay, so good. I still have some time. Yeah, you've got some time, and the automakers are going to cry uncle. I would think within the next 60 to 90 days, you're going to start hearing about auto plants temporarily idling production, mm-hmm. and that would be your sweetest moment to buy because you know once they idle production they'll start whittling down those inventories and they won't have as right. much incentive to offer deals okay but this year is going to be the best year of the last many for you to junk the 12 year old vehicle and get your new one perfect but like- even with that sandra please follow my steps at clark.com of the ways to buy a car the way that works best for your wallet and with the least amount of hassle. A lot of times you think doing what's best for your wallet equals a lot of hassle. With a car, you do it the right way. You both save money and eliminate hassle. Do I have a new news development for you involving all those IRS collection calls? Whoa, wait till you hear this in today's Clark Rage. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. Police have now captured the ringleader of one of the big IRS collection call scams. I had so many calls from people who, without realizing they were being duped, paid money to crooks pretending to be from the IRS saying you were going to jail or worse. If you didn't pay, what would be worse than jail? Anyway, if you didn't pay right now for your tax debt due, this guy, and this is amazing, his name's Param Singh, was making a net profit of $225,000 a day every day of the year with his ring of accomplices that were calling people 
saying they were from the IRS. 400 people have been charged so far, but only a dozen arrested at this point in this scam. Here's what you need to know. It was so successful as a scam that this isn't the only ring calling people and pretending to be from the IRS saying you have a tax debt due and pay it right now or else. The IRS does not make those calls. The IRS does not get you to pay money over the phone. The IRS will not ask you to disclose your Social Security number over the phone. If somebody calls pretending to be from the IRS, you need to have that person meet your friend, Mr. Buzz. That's the dial tone when you hang up on that hoodlum. Be careful out there. You know, if you're looking to buy paper towels or a can of beans, knowing what other people paid for them isn't really that important. Paper towels, it's beans. But for a big purchase, like a car, that kind of information isn't just helpful, it's essential. Well, with TrueCar, you can do just that. You see, TrueCar lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car that you're looking to buy, which will help you determine a fair price. And the best part? You can work directly with a True Car certified dealer to establish a fair price before you even show up on the lot. Yeah, that's right. True Car certified dealers have all the same information you do and are just there to help you get the car you want while offering you a faster, easier buying experience. Who doesn't want that? And knowing what others have paid has helped True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that car, there's only one place to go. Visit TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You can get it at TrueCar.com or the super easy to use TrueCar app. Some features not available in all states. Glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so that you can take better charge of your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me that will help you save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. And ClarkDeals.com is our deal site that is growing like gangbusters. I guess if you tend to like what I talk about on the air and what we talk about at Clark.com, you're likely to love bargains and deals. And that's why we have Clark Deals. So... What's the deal if you can't pay your income tax next week? So the mistake that people historically have made is that when you can't pay your taxes, you throw up your arms and you don't file a return. That is tragic for your wallet. And the reason is this, there's... Something about how the IRS thinks and operates that most people really aren't up to date on. So if you file a return and don't have the money, the IRS penalties for non-payment of the tax are, especially now with interest rates so low in the general economy, are extremely low. On the other hand, If you fail to file, you're like, oh, well, I don't have the money. Why would I even bother? The IRS penalties become gigantic, humongous on that unpaid tax. So if you're facing the fact that you owe 
X number of dollars and you don't have those X number of dollars, please go ahead and file the return anyway. You can use, if your income is such, you can use any of the free file services at irs.gov where you have private tax preparation firms that if you meet the income eligibility requirements, you pay nothing to prepare and file your taxes, which is important if you're short of money anyway. And so you file the return and then send in whatever you can afford. Let's say, as an example, I'm just going to use simple, simple numbers. You owe $1,000 you can't pay. Send them 50, send them 100, send them whatever you have. And if you have nothing, send them nothing. But make sure you don't miss the tax filing deadline. The IRS will allow you to propose a payment plan to them. And like everything else with the IRS, there's a form for it, Form 9465. And you propose a payment plan that the IRS will get back to you, I don't know, six months to a year later and tell you if they accept or reject your plan. In the meantime, whatever plan you propose to the IRS, just start doing it. Let's take that $1,000 tax due bill. If you propose in your payment plan that you'll pay them $100 a month, then just pay them $100 a month. By the time they answer you yes or no, you have already wiped out a substantial amount of what you owe. And you will have bought yourself time at, again, extremely low interest rates. The IRS has four different options for a payment plan. You have to pay a filing fee for a payment plan, which I think is counterproductive. Anyway, they charge anywhere from 30 bucks to over 200 bucks depending on which option you select most people will work just fine with the $30 offer $30 payment plan plan if you want to call it that and just always remember this rule always failure to file you get eaten up failure to pay Basically, today, they just take a little nibble from you, and that's it. Now, then I want to address one other thing with this, and that is, if you're listening to me, and you haven't filed for years, and I've just made it worse for you by telling you that failure to file is where you really got eaten up, know that there is an advantage to coming forward on your own. Because if you come forward on your own, you're treated one way. If you wait till the IRS finds you, you're treated completely a different way, and it's not pleasant. And whatever you owe, you'll deal with those consequences. But come forward if you just haven't been filing in years and years and years. And I'm speaking with, I don't know who I'm speaking with. What's your name? This is Tim. Tim? Yes. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show. How can I serve Hi, you, Tim? Well, I had sent in a uh, 
asked Clark about my Prosper account. I was having a little trouble trying to figure out my statements. I've been a, uh, a test pilot for Prosper for about a year, and uh, I can't really make heads or tails out of these statements. I can't, I can't make heads or tails of mine either. Oh, good. I'm not alone then. Yeah, so let me set background for your fellow listener. So I, over the years, people have asked me so many questions about Prosper and Lending Club is a way to borrow money or is a way to invest and make money being the equivalent of a miniaturized bank lending money to people. And if you put money into Lending Club or Prosper, as an investor, your money either is invested in loans that you select individually, or you tell them what kind of risk portfolio you're willing to accept, and they automatically put your money to work across loans. Now, did you individually select yours, or did you do the automatic? Initially, I individually selected, but uh, I soon after that went on the automatic for any reinvestments. So my story is, because I talked about it so much but never experienced it myself, I put $5,000 into Prosper and $5,000 into Lending Club. And they, uh, they are able to take that money and divide it out among, gosh, how many loans would that be for five thousand? Be uh, a couple of hundred, right? Two hundred and fifty, something like that. And how many loans are you in right now? Um, I am in currently twenty-five. Okay, I, I put five hundred in initially about a year ago. And what do they say your account balance is today, a year later? Um, let's see, it's the other statements last month, uh, 509. Uh, so you made have. a grand total of $9 in one year? Yeah, well, that's, that's better than the bank. Yeah, but, but you're taking on risk you don't take on in the bank. That's pretty disappointing. Yeah, well, I had one charge off. And uh, that put me in the hole, and I've, I've crawled back out of the hole. So I have one delinquent loan right now on Lending Club, and I don't have any on Prosper. And people seem to be generally paying as agreed so far on my loans. And I have no stated rate of return yet from Prosper. You know, the line is blank where they show my rate of return. On Lending Club, they say my adjusted annualized return accounting for the delinquent loan is 9.95%. Mine shows a a 1.08%. So you're in a really bad batch of loans. Well, I think it's because the amount I put in was so small, one one loan really skewed the the whole works. But, you know, I've done this to see how it stands the test of time, and I have not nearly enough track record. I've been in, what, four or six months, I guess? I don't have enough track record to really give a solid answer on whether or not this is a good way to take some of your money and put it at risk that would sit otherwise 
in a savings account or a CD, and I, I just can't answer that yet. For borrowers, uh-huh. for borrowers, uh, Prosper and Lending Club are a great deal. I mean, they're a tremendous deal for the people on the other side of the equation from you and me. Right. Because they're borrowing money at a lower interest rate than they can borrow it from the bank. But you and I take on the same risk as a bank that somebody doesn't pay, we that loan's written off and we lose that money. Well, it, the last couple of statements I've got, I show a few cents being returned out of collection, so they are recovering a little bit out of it. So it's not a total loss, but it's not looking good. Well, I am really sorry about that. And uh, we're going to um, periodically post my actual results on Clark.com. Let people see how many loans are performing, how many are delinquent or have been written off, and just give the whole picture so that people are interested in potentially investing like I did with Lending Club or Prosper. They'll know going in with their eyes open what to expect. Well, I'll, I'll be interested to see that as well. And Tim, I'm, I'm sorry that for you so far... It's been basically nothing as far as a positive and that you still have the risk that you've lent money to people that they may or may not pay back. It's disappointing. Michael's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Michael. Hello. How you doing? How are you? Good. How are you today? Good, good. You have a teenage son who's already focused on his future. Yes, I do. And I had a question for you. I'm ready. Okay. He uh, filled out an application for a Roth IRA, and when it arrived, it said that he was going to be put into a brokerage Roth IRA. And I was wondering, and him, if there's a difference between a regular Roth and a brokerage Roth, and which one would be better for him? Well, a brokerage Roth would allow your son to buy individual stocks and would allow your son to buy the equivalent of funds that trade like stocks called ETFs, or exchange-traded funds, which would be a lot like what you do in a normal IRA or Roth where in, a, in an account you'd buy index funds or mutual funds. A brokerage IRA lets you buy their cousin, which is the exchange-traded fund. Okay. But Um, as far as going into a brokerage Roth, um, do you have a sense, is this a company where he makes his own decisions, or is this one where he has an individual who advises him at that brokerage? No, it's one that he makes his own decisions, and I believe, and um, I, I guess my question was whether he was going to be charged extra to be in this account, because they, they did not offer a traditional one. Well, go ahead and, because uh, I'm confused here, go ahead and name the company that he's... It's Vanguard. It's through... The one you suggest. All right, so Vanguard. All right, so with Vanguard, Vanguard is doing a hybrid type account now that is a brokerage account 
and a traditional mutual fund account all in one. And it's because they were duplicating things that people who had a desire to own individual stocks and also own Vanguard funds were having to have two separate accounts with Vanguard, causing inconvenience for the customer or the member, whatever you call them, of Vanguard, since you own the place when you have an account, and they were causing extra costs administratively for Vanguard. So what they did is they went to one essentially master account, and in that account, your son can buy traditional Vanguard mutual funds, traditional Vanguard index funds, individual stocks, Vanguard exchange traded funds, whatever. So there's no downside to it. It potentially is an upside in that it gives your son over the years more flexibility. But if he's opening a Roth and he's um, a teenager, I would say he should look at just putting that Roth money into the simplest choice possible, which would be the Vanguard Target Retirement Fund, like 2060, or if they have a 2065 fund, because how young he is, uh, he would want to put his money into that. And that's uh, kind of getting him into the year close to when he'd retire. Yeah, that's what that, that's what we were going to do was put him into a target fund. So he can do that just like you intended, and it's no negative significance that they call it a Vanguard brokerage Roth account. I guess that was my question because that's what scared me when I seen that. Like he was going to get charged other fees. Nope, not at all. Like that. Nope, he's good. The only thing he's got to do is he has to open that Roth with a minimum $1,000. Okay. And he has yeah. to have earned income in a year equal to or exceeding how much money he wants to put in that Roth. That means money from a job. Right. Yeah, so as long as he's got that, he's good to go. Okay, well, thanks. And how great that he's getting with the investing habit as a teenager. It's time for Ask Clark. Our producer, Joel, asked me a question that you posted at Clark.com. Clark, got Yeah, Dana wants to know, is it necessary to give my Social Security number when I'm signing up for car insurance? Yes, it is, and for the freakiest of reasons. Auto insurers, they vary how much they do this, but many auto insurers use the primary criterion for setting your rates for auto insurance being your credit score. So the reason they want your social security number is to run your credit. And someone, there was a study recently that found that someone who's got a great credit score and a DUI from many insurers will get a lower rate than somebody who's had a perfect driving record but has some negative marks on their credit. That's crazy. Joe writes in, he says, how much does an electric company pay you or me if we sell electricity back to them from the solar that we have? It's set by each of the 50 states and their regulation of power companies. And in some states, the rate that they pay for excess power when you're selling power back to the power company is very favorable. In others, it's a pitiful amount, so the power company profits from your solar. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust someone who's got your best interests in mind. 
And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so that you can keep more of what you make. Follow me at facebook.com slash clarkhoward. Clark.com is our website. Clark.com slash ask is how you ask me a question. Coming up in just a half hour, we're going to talk about a new risk for you on an iPhone or Android that you access by fingerprint. A new vulnerability has been discovered. Let me tell you this. If you use Android Pay, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, you may not want to do that anymore after what I share with you in a half hour. In 2009, there were a series of catastrophic floods in parts of the eastern United States. Tens of thousands of people had their homes become unoccupiable from the severe flooding. And when I was doing my TV stories about it and my TV work, over and over and over and over again, I had the sad duty of interviewing people whose homes had been destroyed who had no coverage because they didn't realize that homeowner's insurance does not cover you for a flood. And a survey found recently that close to two-thirds of people thought, homeowners thought, that their homeowner's insurance policy covered you if your home flooded. It doesn't. Insurers redline so many things now that they don't cover anymore. And you're left buying a separate policy on your own, and we just aren't tuned into that. We have busy lives You buy homeowner's insurance, you think it's going to protect your home, right? But it protects from only the things the insurer says it does. And so if a home floods and you don't have flood insurance, the insurer you have says, gosh, we're really sorry. Get lost now. And I know that in a life that's busy with all kinds of expenses, Adding one more voluntarily, if your mortgage company doesn't require it, adding flood insurance may seem ridiculous. But the way the federal flood insurance program works is the premiums are on a sliding scale based on the 
likelihood or lack thereof that your home could get flooded. And the federal flood insurance provides coverage up to a quarter million dollars. So our home sits adjacent to two smaller creeks. None of our home is in a federally designated flood zone. But I have chosen to buy federal flood insurance at our home. It's a few hundred dollars a year because my risk level is so low where I live. But with two creeks by my house, you have a hundred-year flood. You know, that's the one that mathematically is likely to occur once only 100 years, but could be tomorrow for all you know. I don't want to be in a position where I'm having to rebuild my home in a case like that out of my own pocket if even though I'm out of a floodplain and the feds say I'm not in a flood zone, it gets flooded, everybody's going to be shrugging their shoulders, and it's my wallet that gets emptied. So you can go to floodsmart.gov, and if you live in a lower-lying area, but not what people think of as a flood zone, particularly if you're in an area where a lot of new development is taking place, say a lot of apartments, shopping centers, a lot of new asphalt is being poured, areas that have not in the past been subject to flooding or prone to it, can flood because of the new construction going on near you. Go to floodsmart.gov and see what risk level you face. And you'll in turn be able to see what kind of premium you would have where you live. Now, obviously, if you live on high ground or higher ground, this would be a waste of your money. But if you live in an area that Potentially, you could end up with water rolling into your home. Be smart about this. It's like the calls I get about earthquake insurance. If you live in an area where earthquakes are extremely unlikely, extremely remote as a possibility, buying earthquake insurance is not the best idea. But if you live in an area that is known to be prone to earthquakes, even if it's not a high earthquake risk area, it may be a smart move for you to consider buying the earthquake coverage. Mel is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mel. Hello, Howard. How are you? Great, thank you. You have bought a ticket on Norwegian. How did you know that? Wow. I I see it right here. No, I'm a clairvoyant, and I guessed. All I see on my screen, Mel, is that you booked a Norwegian flight. That's all I know so far. Yes, I did. I got a very good deal on it. Where are you flying from and to? From LAX to Spain. Ah, the new service to Barcelona? No, actually it's to Madrid. It goes through Sweden, change planes there, and from there to... uh, to Madrid. And for people who aren't aware, Norwegian is the third largest discount airline in Europe, and they, different than their two big competitors, 
Ryanair and EasyJet have decided that they are going to fly an enormous number of ultra-cheap discount flights to the United States. And I have booked a $65 one-way introductory special on Norwegian from Providence, Rhode Island to Edinburgh, Scotland to see what the experience is like on Norwegian so that when people ask me about it, I'll have at least some opinion from having uh, tested the service. Well, it's a tough job, but somebody has to do it, right? Exactly. And by the way, I don't accept anything free, so I I laid out my $65 to fly them. It's my own money. Oh. Wow. So uh, how can I um, help you with flying Norwegian? Okay, I, I flew Norwegian two years ago to Barcelona, and I'm making a return trip, my second trip to Spain. Last time, uh, my price included reserved seats. This time, it does not. My question is, will they, will, are they gonna, am I gonna have to come up with that money, or will they allow me to get a seat when I'm there, or will they give it to someone else? I'm a little bit worried about that. Oh, because of the United thing, you're worried they're gonna say, ah, oh, well, we're overbooked. We, you don't have a seat assignment. You're out of here. Well, I, I booked this a long time ago. So yeah, there's no even there's no United. concern you should have about that. So with Norwegian, okay. and this is a, a emerging trend with so many airlines here in the United States and overseas, I'm flying a flight on Spirit in two days. And I had a choice of booking. Everybody's looking at me like I'm an idiot booking a ticket on Spirit. Anyway, the, the fare was... I think it was $38 a ticket. And so it was so much cheaper than anybody else that uh, Southwest for the flight was over $200 one way. And the other airline I checked was was Delta that was over $400 one way. And Spirit was 38 So I booked the $38 flight, but I wouldn't pay for a seat assignment. And my family... There are four of us going, and my family's like, what are you doing to us? And I'm like, well, the seat assignment was as much as the ticket. I'm not going to pay for a seat assignment. So I'm just going to take my chances when we uh, we, uh, print our boarding passes, which is when you do get to pick your seat assignment. And if I remember right with Norwegian, Mel, you'll be able to pick a seat assignment when you do print that boarding pass one day ahead. Oh, one day ahead. Oh, wonderful. That's my that's, that's my memory. Better. I hope I'm not wrong on that. That they let you okay. pick it a day in advance. Wonderful. Wonderful. I better make sure I do that in advance then. And how much were your baggage charges? Uh I have I I just take carry on, so You take a just, little just teensy tiny carry on to Europe that'll fit under the seat in front of you? No overhead. Oh, but you have to pay for that, don't you? I don't think so. Okay, and I and check it again, though. All right, and we verified you can. You about that. And we verify that you can uh, check in for your flight twenty four hours in advance. Okay. So good. Ha- have a great time in Spain. 
I will. Spain and Portugal. Oh, and the, have you uh, been to Portugal the, before? This would will be my first time. I have a, an Irish friend from Ireland whose daughter and son have an Irish pub in Portugal. So I'm going to go visit that and then cut across to Sevilla and get there for their spring festival, which I did last year, which is just magnificent. Well, you will be so in love with Portugal. It is a phenomenally great destination, and the prices in Portugal are very affordable. The whole experience there is top, top, top of travel experiences you'll have in your life. Debbie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Debbie, you're looking for something you can do at home to earn some extra money. Is that right? Yes. It's specifically for my teenager, if there's anything legitimate out there. So a lot of the opportunities to work on your own schedule or work from your home, you have to be typically 21 years old, but that's not true for all of them. And I'm trying to think if we have ever specified, I've got a guide at Clark.com that I don't know if you've seen that is a guide to legitimate work-at-home opportunities. And I don't think we've ever gotten into the specifics of what of those a teenager could do, but that Mm -hmm. gives me a great idea. We should see if we can compile that. Joel's already nodding his head. We'll see if we can put that together. (laughs) But your teenager can look through the various things there, see what intrigues her, and then the ones that interest her click on it and and see what would be involved and see if she would qualify. And a lot of teenagers, if she has art talent, do very well running their own business on Etsy. Oh, okay. Does she have any innate or natural art ability? No, more into like gaming, the video games. I did search for the teenage, teenagers work from home and I found some sites but I didn't know if they were really legitimate, and I didn't That's want the You know, that is the very, start. very difficult part, and you're so right, Debbie, to question, because it's an unfortunate thing for me to say, but gosh, I, I hate to even say what I'm about to say, but almost all sites advertised for work at home are not legitimate. It's mm-hmm. very rare that a work at home site is the real deal and is legit. So, right. That'd be great if you would put something together and then tell everybody when it's up, because I think it would be really helpful. I really struggle. A lot of people struggle. Well, what can their kids do? Right. And so, so what we'll do, we have this vetted list of legitimate work at home. We'll go dig into each of them and we'll put some kind of note there if they do allow teenagers to do the work, and that would be an easy way for people to see the list and also see if people under age 21 can participate. Dennis is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Dennis, you are concerned about the FAFSA breach where criminals apparently have access to quite a few people's information who applied for uh, college using or financial aid for college using the FAFSA What's on your mind about it? Well, I've been involved in FAFSA for 
a lot of years and still have a couple more. And so I'm a little bit concerned about this, and I'm just wondering what, what we can do to protect ourselves. I haven't seen anything, any notification from FAFSA or anybody else. So the what's happening, right? So what we know so far from what the IRS is saying is that roughly a hundred thousand soon-to-be college students FAFSAs were breached, and that the criminals have that extensive amount of information that was on them. The IRS knows who the people are whose information was compromised, and they're sending out letters to the affected individuals and families. As far as the ultimate question, with this having been uh, an area that you would have hoped would have been safe, and there's been a breach, how would you protect yourself applying for FAFSA, right? Right. And I got nothing for you on that. (laughs) It's one of those areas where if somebody asked me recently about the FAFSA, there's so much personal information on that college aid application, and the risk of that information falling in the wrong hands is nasty. Do you do the FAFSA? Well, you know what my answer to that is, Dennis? You got to do it. You got to do the FAFSA because there's the possibility that you could end up in a nasty data breach. But if you don't do the FAFSA process, you know you're not going to get the financial aid you may be looking for for one of your kids. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our web address. Clarkdeals.com is where you learn all kinds of ways to save money. All right, we got to talk about your phone right now. There's one issue after another with security on Androids and iPhones where researchers have been able to crack the code of your security on your phone. The latest is a report that two college professors have figured out how to defeat the fingerprint sensor on smartphones And they estimate they can do so with ease roughly two-thirds of the time. Now, that's the headline risk. But it's not like your phone's going to be out of your reach and out of your view constantly. So the risk level to you is much, much lower than approximately two out of three. But it's something that came up When I was at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in January, I was stunned as I listened to a briefing 
about how easy it is for a determined criminal to break into your phone if your security is based on your fingerprint. If you look at how security is done in other situations, they either use an entire handprint, which has a much more difficult mathematical algorithm to be able to crack the code, or to use an eye scan, which is more difficult by so many factors, I can't even I can't even give you a number on it. But a single read of a single fingerprint is apparently pretty easily defeated. So what does this mean to you and me? It means that what we think of as a secure way to access our phone, like I do, my phone has the fingerprint reader. I know the iPhone is on the front. Mine is an Android. It's on the back. And I just uh, put my finger on there, and then instantly my phone's fully alive. The risk is heaviest if I use Android Pay. Or if you have a Samsung, you use Samsung Pay. Or you have an iPhone and you use Apple Pay. There's a real vulnerability with the, with the apparent lack of security involved with fingerprints. With having that single fingerprint, you have an enhanced risk on your phone if you use any of these pay services on your phone, which is ironic because those pay services at a register are considered by people who study this stuff, study payment security at what's called POS, point of sale. You may think that means something else, but there's a family show. That with the POS systems, that paying with your phone is a more secure path than paying with a piece of plastic. But then you take this step back and the fact that your phone itself potentially is vulnerable to being compromised. And so you may think, oh, well, I don't use a fingerprint. I use a password. So let me put more fear into you. There's another report about a way researchers in Great Britain have been able to figure out how to crack your phone pretty easily if you're doing a four-digit PIN. So I hope that I've created enough paranoia in you, which is not my purpose, actually. But we get to a point pretty quickly that we trust the secure nature of what we do on our phones when we put in a password or where we put it in being read by a pattern or by a fingerprint. But it is not the level of security and safety for you that you assume. So you need to be very cautious what actions someone can take on your phone if it falls into the wrong hands based on the security you put in place on your phone. Natalie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Natalie. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. Natalie, you're excited potentially by Bitcoin? Yes, 
I'm, me and my husband are looking into investing in that. Well, I am so glad you used the word you used for it, Natalie. That word you used was investing. Yes. All right. So uh, you you were thinking that if you take your money and you put it into bitcoins, that over time you'll have like a really nice return on that money. Correct. So the thing with Bitcoin is that it's been extremely volatile. Have you looked at one of those charts about what's happened yes. with the value of Bitcoin over time? Yes, we have. And so you think about that pattern, and my wife loves to go ride roller coasters. Yeah. Do you know when I like to look at a roller coaster? Wow. Sitting on the ground watching other people on the roller coaster. Exactly. And right. so the thing with Bitcoin is it's not really designed to be an investment. It's designed to be a payment system, an alternate payment system. And it's very valuable to people who engage in criminal activity because it makes their movement of money essentially untraceable. And then there are okay. other people who uh, believe that government is no longer a um, responsible manager of the money that a government prints. And so it's a libertarian kind of thing to use Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And as a payment platform, it's just fine. But I'm very nervous about you and your husband using it as an investment strategy because it's more like a speculative event. When you see something that goes up and down like the roller coaster that Bitcoin has been on, if you guess wrong and buy in at the wrong moment, you could see a lot of your money evaporate. Okay. And what's the value today? I haven't looked recently. Um, I think it's like $1,220 right now. It's, it's up around $800 from last year. And what was it before that? Yeah, twelve hundred twenty-six. So I'm looking at it. It was uh, in 2014. It was at what looks like an all-time peak value, and then mm-hmm. it collapsed over the next couple of years, and then it started climbing again. Um, in looks like the fall of 2016. Then it took another dip, and then it's been climbing again recently. Yeah. So it is if you and your husband like taking on a very high level of risk for the potential of getting a reward, you could look at this that way, but you'd have to look at it more like um if you ever do any casino gambling? Uh very very rare, maybe once or twice in my life. <laughs> well, this would be your new casino. Okay. And so any money that you would lose sleep over if you lost it, I would not want you to put into this, Natalie, because it does have extremely high risk of strong movements up or down. Okay. Um, What do you think of the crowdfunding that they've put together for that? We don't quite understand what that is. Okay, so that's something else. That's somebody who's putting together a 
new cryptocurrency, a new non-governmental money, and they're treating it as like a multi-level marketing kind of thing. Okay. And that is not Bitcoin, unless somebody else has now started another one using Bitcoin as part of the multi-level marketing. I think that's taking two things together that are each an area of risk and compounding it is an even higher risk. And I would strongly discourage you and your husband from getting involved in any kind of, um, you said crowdfunding, but what I've seen is they more like um, recruiting things where you recruit other people in and they recruit other people in and you get commissions off of who, am I getting it right? Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I wouldn't go anywhere near that. That is a recipe for a disaster for your and your husband's wallet. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, James. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You're going to Carnegie Hall. I am. It's actually our sixth trip over the last uh, 20 years. Wow, my great niece just performed at Carnegie Hall. That's outstanding. Very cool. Well, we are trying to raise some funds to pay for the bus to get there. It's already an expensive trip, and I'm trying to help my kids out by getting the bus paid for um, through uh, funding locally, and I often ask our local businesses to help us out. This year, I'm thinking about doing it with an online funding website, and I was a little disappointed to find out how much they charge for those things, and I wanted to get your opinion on the format, but also on whether there's some cheaper ones. So you're thinking like a you fund me kind of thing? Exactly. So, I mean, they what they do is they allow virtually anybody to put together a campaign and you spread the publicity on social media and email and however you could in your community. And then people go to the GoFundMe page or whatever competitor you would use and they donate the money and then uh, you get a net of, is it 97% of what they donate? That's correct with the company that you mentioned. Right. So I haven't checked out on the others yet. That's not considered to be a large amount of money to to take out from the fundraising effort. Hmm. Okay. So 97 cents out of every dollar somebody donates towards the bus going towards the bus is pretty efficient. You know, they have potentially merchant fees and other expenses for running the operation that 3% is within the realm of being reasonable. Okay. How are you going to promote it, though, that to be able to get people to donate to get you the money? Like, how much money is it going to take for the bus? The bus costs around $10,000, uh, give or take, 1000 depending on the year and gas prices. Um, so, uh, and I don't have to raise every single little bit of it. We do some uh, performing around town and people donate money as well. So it's not like we just have to use this one source. But I'd like to, to get as much of it as possible through this method. I'm thinking uh, primarily Facebook, but I could still send my letter drive out and just not have the return envelope already pre-stamped. That would save some money. I usually send a letter out with uh, a self-addressed envelope back. But you give people now, you give people the ability on their phone or on a laptop 
to right. contribute right then and there, your response rate is almost certainly higher, even if you had a self-addressed stamped envelope included. Oh, okay. Because so pe- people are much more likely today to donate online where it just takes them a second right. than uh, the act of pulling out a checkbook and writing a check mm-hmm. stops. I would guess at least two-thirds of people now are not going to go forward with making a contribution if they have to go through the process of writing a check. <laughs> We've gotten pretty lazy, haven't we? Well, it's just things change over time, and people like to do it differently today. And I hope you're successful with the fundraising and the kids get to take the trip. Joseph's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Joseph. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I'm glad I could finally get on. Well, I'm glad I have you here. <laughs> yes, I got a um, kind of a credit question for you. Um, me and my fiance are trying to get a uh, first buyer's home loan. Um, and she hasn't been able to um, start her credit um, as far as in, in the positive. Um, she has um, bad credit from hospital visits from our the birth of our uh, two-year-old, and I was wondering, you know, the best way to go about um, maybe getting her started with some kind of um, bank credit card or some kind of way to put her credit in the positive. All right. So first of all, congratulations on your two-year-old. Thank you. And second... The hospital bills, have they been addressed yet? Um, a couple of them have. Um, we're in kind of um, a limbo dispute with the other ones as far as the insurance that she carried pay, either paid for all or half. Um, most of the ones that we've noticed have been, I guess, out of, um, not really out of patient, but it's been out of hospital. So like checkup visits and stuff like that. Okay. The reason I ask is that it's kind of like spinning your wheels if you have outstanding debts there. It's hard to to really establish the positive credit without having dealt with those yet. So how much money is sitting there with those medical bills? Um, altogether, I believe it is 400 and some change. All right. So I would say that the highest priority for her is to get those taken care of. Okay. And then look at starting to establish good credit. Do you have your own credit cards? I do. I personally do. So you can add her as an authorized user on your accounts, or even depending on the issuer, maybe even as a co-owner. And she instantly will have access to good credit and will build up a good credit score that will allow the two of you to proceed to own a home. Okay. But the medic the four hundred and something dollars, that fortunately is a small enough amount there'd be very much to her and your advantage to get those settled up. Okay. And as far as adding her to my account, would uh what I use my credit card for as a, as uh, as far as my expenses, um I've always kept all of my payments on time. I, I think Mine's like in the mid seven hundreds. Would that reflect onto her credit report as well? Yes. Okay. Cool. It, it is a maybe if you make her an authorized user. It's a yes if the issuer allows you to add her as a co-owner of the account. Okay. And, and so that would that would automatically get her to having better credit. Now, the other path is one you may have heard me mention, and that is having her join a credit union and use one of the Fresh Start programs at a credit union 
where they'll issue her a starter credit card. And not all credit unions do that, but most do, is a great way for her to establish good credit moving forward. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbour of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd I'd never really come across them in bad ways. It was always, even when I said hello, they never seemed to speak back to you. It was just like, kept themselves to themselves, and that was about it. The British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating. President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican. I'm Rita Foley.